0: In the popular mind, we think that the big Reagan buildup in the 1980s was was the pinnacle of, of Pentagon spending with the exclusion of, of the World War II years. But in reality, in the last 15 years, that's when we've really reached our peak, with the peak being in, in 2011, when, when just Pentagon spending peaked at uh, approximately $711 billion that year. You're listening to War College, a weekly podcast that brings you the
1: stories from behind the front lines. Here are your hosts, Matthew Galt and Jason Fields. Hello, War College listeners. I am your host, Matthew Galt. Jason Fields is here in spirit, if not in the digital flesh. Last week, we spoke to David Deptula, Dean of Mitchell Institute of Aerospace Power Studies and retired Air Force Lieutenant General. He walked us through the purpose and power of the B-21. During that conversation, we had a long aside about the Pentagon budget. It was a good talk and a point of view you don't normally hear on this show, but we didn't want it to stand alone and we didn't want it to go unchallenged. So today's show is a bit of an odd mix. We're going to open with Deptula's thoughts on the Pentagon's budget and dovetail that into a conversation with former Marine Corps captain and current government watchdog Dan Grazer. But first, here's Deptula talking about the budget.
0: Can you explain briefly what you mean by uh, constrained resources? Because all we're hearing about, and by the way, I'm not taking any sort of stance whatsoever. Uh, We keep hearing about this desire to increase the defense budget uh, by something like $65 billion. And I know there's a lot of talk about how the figures are sliding all over the place, and it may already be money
1: that had been supposed to go to defense. But I think there's a perception that the government is looking to spend more on defense.
2: Well, let me uh, answer your question this way. If you look at our national security strategies over the last 25, 30 years, there are two consistent underlying themes that have been evidenced in them, regardless of administration, Democrat or Republican in place. And essentially those two are this. One, during peacetime, the United States the military will engage around the world in an attempt to work with partners and allies and friends and influence potential adversaries to promote peace, assure stability, and avoid situations that might erupt in conflict. In order to be able to do that, we need to have sufficient rotational base structures and force structure to be able to execute those operations around the world, okay, that's one. Number two is, if in fact we do get involved in conflict, we need to be able to succeed in a minimum of more than one, read two, major regional contingencies simultaneously. The reason that's so important is if you only have a strategy that's designed to fight and win one major contingency, our adversaries know that, and there are others that will take advantage of that opportunity to cause mischief in other parts of the world. So if you go back and you take a look at those two key tenets, and speaking at a macro level, look at uh, the spectrum of conflict that I mentioned earlier – Each one of the services need to be able to provide the resources to handle that rotational base during peacetime so we don't drive our people into the ground, and number two, be able to succeed against real modern threats in two locations. So that sets sort of the four-sizing methodology for what we need. Now, I go back to kind of what's occurred over the last 25 years. We've been operating on the left side or the low-end conflict side of the security spectrum. Remember what happened after the Berlin Wall came down. Actually, you guys are probably too young to remember that. But that's- I'm not, actually. But- All right. <laughs> um, you know, what happened? The decade of the 90s was an attempt to seek the, the peace dividend. Okay, The Russians were going to be our friends, they were going to be our partners, we didn't have to worry about nukes anymore, we didn't have to worry about Russian threats anymore. The Chinese were still well behind the United States, they were going to be our partners as late as the 2000s, the first decade of the 2000s. Secretary Gates talked about the Chinese being our partners and he didn't want to hear anything about preparing to be challenged by the Chinese. Well, guess what? Here we are in 2017, very much different Russia that we're facing. Some uh, refer to it as a resurgent Russia, at least in terms of their nuclear capabilities, as well as reinvigorating their conventional capabilities. What they've done in Ukraine, what they've done in Syria, the threats against the Baltics. And you have a China that is now on track to exceed the United States' economic prowess in the not-too-distant future. They have dramatically accelerated their economic as well as military prowess. So the, the, without talking about a specific number, we've allowed our military capabilities to meet these national security requirements against advanced threats to atrophy. So, you know, we, we are operating, in the case of the Air Force, a geriatric Air Force, You know, the B-52s that we're operating today are, the youngest one is 52 years old. We have trainers that are over 40 years old. We have fighters that are over 30 years old. And so, you know, if we want to maintain the ability uh, to have accomplished the national security requirements in uh, the modern era, we've got to recapitalize our force. We forwent that recapitalization in the decade of the 90s. In the 2000s, uh, the Air Force was essentially a bill payer for the increase in the size of the Army to conduct counterinsurgency operations. And then introduced in 2011 was the Budget Control Act, which was an attempt to at least slow the acceleration rate of the national debt uh, which, by the way, taxed the military at a rate disproportionate to its makeup of the federal budget. So, and then the whole notion of sequestration was introduced. People tend to forget this to be a budget control measure so onerous and ridiculously ineffective that It would force the Congress to avoid it by introducing a budget, but they didn't do that. So we have lived with constraints that have neutered our military. I mean, the Congress of the United States did more damage to the U.S. Air Force than our most determined adversary could only hope to accomplish by introducing the Budget Control Act of 2011 and sequestration. I mean, if you recall what happened in 2013 when sequestration came into play, I mean, we literally shut down 30 percent of our squadrons, We didn't conduct any red flags. We didn't do any test or training. And that had an enormous impact on reducing readiness. And so we need to recover from if we want to maintain these national security strategy objectives, we need to recover to be able to do that. So you have two choices. Number one, you can either resource the Department of Defense to meet the needs of the national security strategy, or you can change the national security strategy, and which takes us into the realm of walking back from this notion of being a global superpower or a force for good to more of a regional threat, or I'm sorry, a regional uh, actor. And I don't think the United States of America want to do that, because quite frankly, that would result in a more problematic world than we currently exist in. So I'm sorry for the long answer, but it's a complicated set of elements that play into the rationale for why the Department of Defense needs to uh, increase the resources, either increase the resources or you reduce the strategic objectives.
1: It's one of the great things about podcasts is that we can allow for long, complicated answers, so thank you for that. That was last week's guest, retired Air Force Lieutenant General David Deptula, talking about the budget. Here to give us some context and a rebuttal to those statements is former Marine Corps Captain Dan Grazier. He served tours of duty in Iraq and Afghanistan and now works for the Strauss Military Reform Project at the Project on Government Oversight, a nonpartisan think tank that studies issues such as the Pentagon's budget. Dan, thank you so much for being here. All right, let's zoom out a little bit. Let's, let's kind of put some of this in context for the audience. His, his kind of opinions, I think, represents one side of the argument, and there's another side of the argument, which I think is more of the Project on Government Oversight side of the argument. Can you kind of elaborate on that for us? sure you know the 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 way we we tend to look at
0: uh, at military spending is the you can you, you can have these wide you can have the this this spigot wide open and you can have these you know these unlimited budgets and what happens is the 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 people in the Pentagon and the defense industry they essentially stop thinking and they start making really bad decisions because if there are no constraints on you know no real constraints on the budget, then you get to kind of have your big massive wish list uh, fulfilled and instead of making hard decisions about uh, do we really need uh, to buy a you know one hundred and twenty million dollar uh, per copy aircraft, or could we design something simpler and, and less expensive? And if you, and, and by, by constraining budgets, you kind of instill that kind of discipline where you make people make the hard choices and make the, make the necessary trade-offs. And you come up with simpler systems, which at the end of the day, simpler systems are almost always a better option for, for military hardware, because in combat, uh, combat is a very chaotic uh, situation, and in that situation, you don't want your your troops uh, facing inward uh, focusing on maintaining and and tinkering with their extremely complicated gear. You want that gear to kind of fade in the background so they can focus outward on the enemy and actually accomplish the mission.
1: It feels like we've been living in a fantasy world, I think, in terms of Pentagon budget for a while now. do you think that's that's true? Like they've the tap the spigot's been open for a long time. Oh, absolutely. The you know if if you if you go back
0: and you look at uh, historical spending levels, uh, even adjusted for inflation, the spending levels over the last you know wow, I mean pretty much ever since September 11th, the the. The spending levels increased, and and in the popular mind, we think that the big Reagan buildup in the 1980s was was the pinnacle of of Pentagon spending, with the exclusion of of the World War II years. But in reality, in the last 15 years, that's when we've really reached our peak, with the peak being in in 2011, when when just Pentagon spending peaked at uh, approximately 711 billion dollars that year. And I heard it in the Marine Corps for, you know, about the last five years or so that I was in about how, Oh, resources are, are constrained. You know, I, I didn't see it too much. There was a lot of talk about it, but um, even when, when spending was, you know, under, under sequestration and under the, uh, and under the budget caps, I mean, we're still talking, you know, well over $500 billion a year. So, and and you haven't seen any of those real hard choices being made. You know, you still see us pursuing these massively expensive systems like the F-35, like the B-21, like the uh, Ford, um, like the Ford program. The only possible real exceptions are uh, perhaps the the Zumwalt, although that's still kind of going on in the in the littoral combat ship, because uh, that program is still uh, a bit of a zombie program that that uh, <laughs> that just won't go away completely. So there there is kind of a disconnect. Disconnect between the, the rhetoric of, of you know real constrained budgets and 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 what a- is actually taking place.
1: That's really interesting because that's I, I do hear that constantly, especially from upper level uh, military officials that the, the but that they're constrained that sequestration hurt them that they can't they don't have the resources to get anything done. Uh, and you you look at things like the issues that have uh, affected the Seventh Fleet this past year, especially. Right. And the Navy and the Navy personnel issues they don't have. They're saying they don't have enough sailors. Uh, It feels like these big weapons programs are what's gobbling up the budget. Like they're the real problem. Do you think that's accurate?
0: Oh, definitely. They take up a massive chunk of the of of the budget. And again, and and it all comes from from indiscipline. I mean, you go back and you look at the F-35 program, the F-35 program, the award, uh, you know, the milestone B uh, moment for the F-35 happened in October of 2001. So that's right at the height, like right, you know, just weeks after the the September 11th attacks. I mean, the, the World Trade Center site was still smoking at that point. And so, of course, the Congress was extremely generous with, uh, you know, with, with, with money at that point. And so the, you know, the, the Pentagon just went crazy with this program and they decided to add everything they possibly could. So there was literally no discipline involved in that in that process. And so there were some very poor decisions that were made because there wasn't the, the the budget, or there wasn't the discipline imposed by, uh,
1: you know, more constrained budgets. All right, can you explain to the audience uh, what the MDAP is, what it stands for, and why the Pentagon wants to avoid it? This is something you just wrote about, right? I did. I published a
0: piece just today uh, about this. So, uh an MDAP is a, a major defense acquisitions program. Uh those are all the uh well when what they should be is they should be every single major uh major weapons program that we have, but what I've I've noticed uh is that the the services are getting creative uh in avoiding that process. Now, the 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 MDAP process, the acquisitions process is a it, it is a behemoth and it is it's very big it's very unwieldy there are a lot of steps involved uh in in bringing about a uh, a major weapon system by the book by the through the MDAT process Um, and I would be the first to tell anybody that if you really look at it and you look at the whole process, there are plenty of places that, um, that it can be streamlined. Uh, and there needs to be a concerted effort to streamline it, uh, to, to reduce some of the burdens that it imposes, um. But we need to we need to keep the the necessary oversight so the the system does not run it does not run amok. Now that being said, uh, programs like the F thirty five are being run as major defense acquisitions programs, and so the system will you know, can produce uh, over budget and overpriced weapon systems. Um, but that all being said, that does not mean that the services should be able to make up the rules as they go um, by, well, a little bit of verbal jujitsu. So a good example, and this is the one that really kind of prompted me to write the piece today or that, that we published today, was the, the Army's uh, tank upgrade program. Uh, the army is upgrading the is coming out with a third generation uh, M1A2 the the M1A2 SEP version three, uh, and they're running it as a um, they're they're calling it an engineering change proposal, and when if you if you add up all the costs involved with the the entire program it 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 vastly surpasses the threshold to be considered a major defense, a category one major defense acquisitions program. Uh, and something that's really interesting is the army is currently running the, the upgrade program for the Hercules, the Mike 88 Hercules tank recovery vehicle as an MDAP. Uh, but they're running the, the, the new tank program as, as, as an engineering change proposal. So the, the recovery, the tank recovery vehicle is going to receive more scrutiny than the tank that it's
1: supposed to recover. When did MD- app come into being and can you kind of give us an overview of how it works to make us understand why they want to avoid it
0: uh that's a that's a good question the the program i don't i don't know the exact dates uh, you know when when it really uh, when it really began it's a Uh, It's a process that that has really kind of evolved and over the over the years into into what it has, you know, it's a it's a really great example of of um, uh, kind of bureaucratic creep, you know, the 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 way more and more regulations are added uh, and and fewer ever taken away. Um, but the the overview of it, it's it, it's a multi-step process. It, it really kind of begins when the the services identify a a capability gap, uh, and and that could be a whole bunch of different things. But um, you know, we'll just take a you know take a take a fighter plane for example. Um, the the services decide that, hey, you know, the the aircraft that we have aren't exactly meeting, uh, meeting the uh, meeting our needs, and they definitely aren't going to meet our needs, you know, out into as we as we you know, view out into the future. So um, let's take a look and, and see what capabilities that we really need. So that kind of begins a, a process uh, where they go through studies. And one of the first things that they do is they actually try to identify, um, you know, whether or not the the capability can be met by, um uh, by By non material means by let 's say changing tactics or something like that, but you know pretty generally they do say that up oh, it does require a, a, a new material need, and so we 're going to pursue a new a new system. And so uh, then they develop um, you know the requirements like what is the new system gonna you know, you know what 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 are we gonna need it to do uh, and so they come up with a requirements list and then these are eventually farmed out to uh, to defense contractors in an ideal world uh, you'll have multiple contractors that will build uh, essentially production representative prototypes those prototypes will um, will compete uh, in. In kind of a head-to-head competition, uh, and then the the best one, uh, the best system will, will win uh, that process. And and at uh, at at milestone C, or a uh, correction at milestone B, that's when the The winning contractor is uh, is announced and then they begin the engineering and, and manufacturing development phase where uh, and this is where the F-35 program is right now where they, they fully develop the system and it goes through all the, all the testing, uh, the developmental testing and then once that's done then it goes through the, the initial operational test and evaluation period and after that when it gets a clean bill of health, again in an ideal situation uh, you get a, it gets a clean bill of health after IOT and E, then you get the milestone C and then it becomes a full production model uh, and is uh, farmed out to the fleet. So again, this is a very long project, you know, process. Um, the, the, the Department of Defense actually created a Defense Acquisition University uh, here in the in the D.C. area to put its people through to go through all of these all of these processes because it is uh, it is very cumbersome. Uh, something I didn't include in our piece, but we found it uh, the other day. Um, they actually there's this big poster size printout uh, that shows uh, it's it's like the the PowerPoint slide from hell that shows all the different nodes and and all the different processes that have to go. Uh, through the that that they have to go through in order to complete the process the right way,
1: okay, well, that sounds like a long involved heavily bureaucratic process well i think David's argument I think he kind of makes it in in the audio in the clip we heard is that it's those kinds of processes that are actually creating the budget overruns that are making the the budget so expensive. Oh I would
0: wholeheartedly disagree with that um you know the 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 source of um the, the source of the, the budget overruns are generally very poor decisions that were made very early on. You know, in order to, um, and we call it in, in in our little world of military reform, we call it the front-loading of projects. And that's where... Uh, the the defense contractors and and the program offices in the Pentagon they make these wild claims about all the all all the wonderful things that this program is going to do and about how inexpensively it's gonna it's gonna be in order in order to do that. So they say those kind of things in order to to get the process rolling. And then later on, when you know, once they realize that they've that they've overpromised the the capabilities, and they 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 grossly overstated um, the or they greatly understated, I should say. Uh, the the expected cost of of the system that's the real source of of the budget overruns it's not the process the process contributes to that uh in only in only very minor ways it's the it's the way that they overpromise the the capabilities and they and they undersell or they and they, they they definitely over promise on the on the
1: savings all right war college listeners thank you so much for joining us we are on with dan grazier talking about the pentagon budget We'll be back right after this.
2: What's the best mattress for you? Well, if you're an egg or a kitten, check out the competition. But if you're a human person, put your body on a Nectar mattress. As well as award-winning layers of comfort, you can sleep easy knowing you got incredible value. Mattresses start at just $499, and you get hundreds of dollars in accessories thrown in, as well as a 365-night home trial and a forever warranty. Go to Nectorsleep.com.
1: Thank you so much, War College listeners. That was a word from our sponsors. You are back. We are talking to Dan Grazier about the Pentagon's budget. Do you think there's ever going to be a reckoning? is a lot of this feels to me, and this just occurred to me now, so tell me if I'm completely off base, this feels like almost like an economic bubble. And that it's going to swell, and that it will burst one day, and hopefully the bursting is not some sort of major conflict where we find out these weapons are all uh, not what we've been told they were
0: well that's that 's definitely our biggest fear and and that 's the and that 's the real motivation that that I have when I go to work every day is we want to make sure that um, that we don't that that these things don 't fail and and this whole system doesn 't explode in our face uh, in in that kind of a situation where we're we're in a we 're in a war and all of a sudden all these weapons that we 've devoted uh, decades and hundreds of billions of dollars to uh, end up not performing well. That's that's the biggest fear. But then the 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 other fear is that. Uh, and again, this is another term of art is that, you know, we're going to face this massive bow wave uh, in in defense acquisitions where, um, you know, we we. You know, because the services have have front loaded all these programs, and you know we might very quickly end up in this position if you think about uh, things like the the F thirty five program. Uh, if um, you know, in the next couple of years, uh, when it does finally, you know, if and when it does finally pass the milestone C. Uh, and it goes into full-rate production, and we start spending, you know, tens of billions of dollars every year trying to buy those. And and the the B-21 program reaches the same point in a couple of years, and we're spending tens of billions of dollars to you know to buy all those. And at the same time, we're we're trying to do the same thing with uh, the Ford aircraft carrier program and all these other different systems. Uh, that all of these things are going to come due at the same time, and and we're just not going to be able to afford it. That's the 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 bow wave for defense acquisitions, and. The- that that could that could that could be a big a big problem that ends up busting the budget um, because we've made because we made poor decisions uh, years ago and we didn't anticipate these kind of things moving
1: forward. Basically, because we bought a bunch of things on credit.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Because we, we, we make these decisions and, and, you know, like the, uh, again, to beat up on the F-35 program a little bit, you know, I mean, that, that program has its origins in, in the mid to late 1980s. And, and it really kind of took off in the, in the early 1990s, around 1993, when, when I was a freshman in high school, I'm 40 years old now. And, and, and the contract was awarded in 2000, 2001, but here we are in 2018 now. And the, the program is only just about this start. Start the the initial operational test and evaluation period. Uh, so, the, I mean, these decisions were made were made decades ago by people who knew when they were making these decisions uh, that. And I'm willing to bet that some of them knew that those decisions were uh, were probably not the best ones. But they knew that they weren't going to be around when
1: when there was going to be that reckoning. Do you think that what what? Okay, if we're spending money on these big weapons systems, other things aren't being let me think of how to rephrase this sorry what parts of the pit of the military budget are actually deserve more cash
0: well definitely uh the the operations and maintenance side of it um and and you know making sure that uh that that the education process or, you know, the, the, the schools, the training and education commands uh, get the resources that they need uh, and, and definitely maintaining the systems that we that we already have. And, uh, you, know, you know, there's there's the there's a lot of people who like to go around and and make claims about uh, older aircraft and how older aircraft are are a bad thing. Well, not necessarily. There's nothing inherently wrong with an older aircraft and with it really any older system. You know, if something is designed well from the very beginning and you maintain it properly, it could be useful for, you know, for decades.
1: I mean, you A- know, I mean, some- the A-10 is the really classic example of that, right?
0: Right. You know, again, if, if the if the A-10 is maintained properly, it is still an extremely useful aircraft. And um, but the the Air Force doesn't like it. And they've been trying to starve the resources for years and years. Good example is they let the contract lapse for the re-winging effort. And now they're uh, they're they're because they were they're shamed into starting that program up they're kind of slow rolling it saying that we have to rebid this whole process and and that's going to take a that's going to take a couple years and then it's going to take a while to uh to create the tools because when they canceled the rewinging process they actually had Boeing who had that contract break all the dies for it so um, they have to, you know, basically trying to force the hand of of Congress and saying, "Hey, we have to cancel this because the uh because the the wings have timed out on it." But I mean, you can look at a whole lot of programs and, and, wait, and wait, this. wait, wait,
1: wait, 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 <laughs> wait. They broke the dies.
0: Yes, yes. They don't have the tools anymore. Uh, the the all the all the necessary tools to continue the rewinging process of the A10.
1: I had not heard that. That is
0: wow. Okay it just shows the animosity that the that the United States Air Force has not just for the A10 but for that but for the whole mission of uh, of close air support somebody going out and saying just because something is old uh doesn't like doesn't necessarily hold water if if a system and this applies to a whole bunch of things if a system is designed well from the very beginning and it is maintained properly it can be useful for for decades if not longer and you know look at something i mean you can look at something you know very simple look at the um, you know the the Colt 911 like that thing was designed so well that it hasn't been changed at all in more than a hundred years, and and people are still fighting to get them. And many in the military wish they they would go back to them. Uh, but you, you know you can look at uh, you know the B fifty two. The B fifty two is still a relevant aircraft. And even though that the even though the youngest one of them is is more than fifty years old, uh, it is still a relevant aircraft because it was designed right from the very beginning, and it has been maintained and upgraded. Properly over the years,
1: they're pulling those out of the boneyard now, aren't they?
0: Yeah, exactly, and because they can. And you know, to go back to the A ten, a little bit of a tangent on this one, uh, the, the the Air Force was caught chopping up relevant, uh, useful A ten uh, frames in the boneyard. And again, it, this is just to force the hand, uh, of, uh, of Congress and saying that, Hey, we have to push forward with the F 35 program because it's going to be the only one that can do this, uh, that can perform this mission because, Hey, wait a second. We don't have any A tens anymore because they all, they, because they were chopped up. Uh, good Lord. Okay. Why doesn't, <laughs> and it's not just the air force that does that. The no, Navy I know does that too. Then the Navy has, uh, has scrapped a lot of, um, uh, a lot of ships um that were retired early uh basically to force congress's hand because they don't have a and to use a you know the the popular phrase a ghost fleet uh so to force congress's hand so they would have to buy new uh new ships rather than having the option of refurbishing older ones that are in the in the mothball
1: fleet why does it seem like walks like you and me are the only ones that care about this um I th- that's a good question. I
0: think a lot of times it's uh, you know most people are uh, are obviously focused on on a whole bunch of other things. Uh, it takes a lot of effort to you know to really kind of go through a lot of these issues and and really read them uh, and and become become uh, familiar with all of them. Uh, there are plenty of there are plenty of people that are concerned with this. I hear from I hear from a lot of people uh, all the time, but uh, there are very few people who actually go out and, and speak publicly about this. I mean, one of the and and there's there's a lot of people um who who make a lot of money um by uh trying to hide this kind of information as well uh so there's a there's a whole whole cottage industry out there of, of think tanks that are wholly bought subsidiaries of uh the Lockheed Martins and Northrop Grumman's of the world Uh, who pay people a lot of money to go out and paint a very rosy picture uh, of the – well, paint a rosy picture of the performance of new systems um, and then paint a very bad picture of the world uh, to try to justify the purchase of a whole lot of these new systems.
1: How do you think we make normal people care? Or do you think it's not going to happen until we have – I mean, with the F-35, they're catching on fire and there's a hypoxia problems. It seems like people should pay attention how do we is it going to take something grander than that
0: well i really fear that that um that 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 is the case and and again i go to work every day to try to raise awareness of these issues uh so that's not a problem you know one of my biggest fears is uh that uh, something like the f35 is going to is going to fail in a way that uh it um, that that Americans get killed, and there are examples of this in the past. You know, you look at what happened with, uh, and 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 I take no pleasure in this as a as you know as, as someone who wore the Marine uniform. I take no pleasure in in bringing this up, but the the Osprey program uh, that was a bit of a poorly conceived program in its day uh, that was that was you know rushed along, uh, and and in the process there were a lot of Marines that were killed uh in 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 accidents with that program and that's those are the kind of things that i that i work very hard to try to uh try to raise awareness of these issues to make sure that that kind of stuff does not happen you know if you look at the ch-53 the the marine heavy lift uh, helicopter. Uh, the the new version of it, the CH-53 Kilo, uh, is coming in at approximately $131 million per copy. That's actually more expensive than the average cost of an F-35 for a helicopter. And that's a little ridiculous because it creates this situation. And I can tell you from personal experience that this does happen, that um, we spend so much money on these things that they uh, they become too expensive to, to lose, uh, which... Means that they're too expensive to use, and it question, you know, and that begs the question of, well, why do we spend any of this money on it in the first place if we're not willing to use it? And again, the the personal experience from this is, I was in Afghanistan in 2013, and we were running Hellbore missions in 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 our area of operations in the in the southwest uh, uh, AO of of Afghanistan that year, and that were being run with uh ch-53s uh by you know marine piloted ch-53s and i can tell you that we weren't sending those into like we knew where the bad guys were and we knew where um we 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 knew where a lot of enemy activity was but we weren't sending the the ch-53s into those areas we were sending them into other areas that that weren't all that bad and when you ask the question about it well you know we don't want to risk the helicopters by sending them into those areas And those were not the $131 million versions of these helicopters. They were the the older, uh, less expensive versions of them. So, you know, uh, again, by by having this permissive budget uh, environment that creates this indiscipline where we spend, you know, $131 million on a helicopter – we, we kind of create this situation where we have this very expensive very delicate military system that we're not really willing to use in in all situations so yeah you, ha- you really have to ask
1: like what was the point in in this program in the first place it's like a toy collector that that buys all the things you wanted as a child and then doesn't open the box yeah exactly
0: that's exactly what it is and and it, it it's it, it really uh, kind of boggles the mind when you when you look at it and you really consider it from that perspective uh, you know we we build this military for um, you know that's that 's oriented for the extreme edge of the the spectrum of conflict and uh, and, and fortunately, that edge of the spectrum is is a very unlikely situation. Uh, but the much more relevant situation that somewhere in the in the middle to lower end, you have this military force that is really uh, not, you know, not 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 geared for that. Uh, it's definitely not equipped for it. and And a lot of times it's not really trained for it either and and so, and sometimes it's actually it's actually counterproductive you know we we kind of lose right from the very outset at the on the moral dimension of warfare, which is the strongest dimension uh by sending a you know one hundred and twenty million dollar you know fighter aircraft to drop a you know a one hundred thousand dollar munition on on a tent. And, you know, you, we really kind of create uh, the situation where you create a David and Goliath situation where we're Goliath. And quite frankly, very few people have rooted for Goliath over the last uh, 2,500 years that that story's
1: been told. That's all for this week, War College listeners. As always, Jason and I appreciate you. The show would not exist without your love and support. If you like the show, please follow us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at war underscore college. Be sure to like and subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, or Android Play. We get a lot of notes and reviews from listeners, and we appreciate all of them. Here's one from Dwight CDD. The hosts of War College use penetrating questioning to shed light on some broadly uncovered topics. This is Convergence Journalism at its best. Thanks, Dwight. And I agree with you about the gobbledygook. Next week, we'll have a great conversation about DARPA and Disney World, and after that, we'll be checking in with China. And yes, we are still working on that episode about the Praetorian Guard. See you next week.